Hey listeners, this is Basim welcoming you back to episode 33 of Wise Words. Joining us today is Robert Talbert from the math department at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. Robert conducts research on all things related to math, education, productivity, tech, and more. He runs a blog which has been compiling it all since 2005. You can find the link to that in the description, by the way. Robert's research in active classrooms is flipping the status quo. Speaking of which, he also wrote a book on flipped learning, which was published in 2015. But what is flipped learning all about? That's what you can expect to learn from this episode. We talk all about what it is, who should use it, why, the implications of it, and so much more. I thoroughly enjoyed my talk with Robert, and I think you will too. So without further ado, let's get started. Robert, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Great. So perhaps we could start off with a brief introduction on your part on uh, who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, well, I'm Robert, uh, Robert Talbert, and uh, I am a professor in the mathematics department at Grand Valley State University. We're located in western Michigan in the United States. Uh, we're a 26,000 student public university in the United States, and um, I've been teaching for about 25 years at this point, been at Grand Valley for 10 years, been flipping my classes for about 10 years. And at Grand Valley, I teach mathematics courses at almost every level in the curriculum. And I'm also assistant chair of my department. So I have some administrative responsibilities and I do research in undergraduate math education, particularly in the flipped learning area. Okay. So when you mention flipping classes, what exactly do we mean by flipped learning? And perhaps you could talk a little about how they differ from a MOOC, for example, because from my understanding, it seems that they can share similar approaches and being able to access educational content from a distance. Sure. It's maybe best to start with just recapping what we already know about traditional modes of instruction. So in a traditional traditionally set up class that most of us are used to from our primary, secondary, and university years. When a student is learning something new, their first contact with the new ideas comes uh, from a group meeting, from a class meeting, usually in the form of a lecture. We assume when we're teaching a class that students come into the class with next to no knowledge about any new subject that's being taught. And so we introduce them to the basics of the new ideas through lecture, just getting basic terminology and basic concepts wrapped up. Maybe a little bit of application takes place during the class meeting, but the class meeting is intended truly for first contact with the new ideas. And then students are expected to go home, uh, back to their rooms or apartments or wherever. And it's in that individual time that they encounter the sort of mid-level or higher level concepts. And they're supposed to make sense of these things by themselves. Uh, the traditional model has been around for about a thousand years now, about as long as the university has been around. But uh, in this day and age, it's, it's based on a scarcity model of information that no longer really exists. Uh, students do not need to have first contact with new ideas through a lecture because information is freely available, widely available to everyone. And there are good cognitive psychology reasons why uh, students should not be simply listening to a lecture when they encounter new ideas. Uh, it's better if they work actively and with other people. And so in flip learning, we reverse 
completely reverse the uh, context in which learning happens, the time and the space that we use for learning. Students in flip learning instead get first contact with new ideas before they come to a class meeting through some sort of structured guided activity through the new material. That can be in the form of a video or it can be simply good guided reading activities or it could be a demo or some sort of activity that they perform. And they come to class with more than zero knowledge of the subject. We expect students in a flipped learning environment to get the basic bottom level tasks learned before they come to class. And then the class time, there is often little to no lecturing that takes place in a flipped class because it's already happened. It's already happened before the class meets. And so an enormous amount of time and space is freed up in the class meeting to do active learning tasks that target the harder stuff that students are supposed to learn. And so in a flipped class, that's why they call it a flipped learning experience because the context when things happen has been completely flipped from uh, the traditional setup. And students in a flipped learning environment are therefore hitting the the hardest material when they are the closest to getting help from their friends, from their classmates, from the professor right there in the class. And so flipped learning is a way of simply designing your courses so that students are getting the first contact with new ideas before any group meeting happens through guided self-learning activities. And then the class time is repurposed for active work on difficult ideas. And you asked how this is different from a MOOC. Uh, there is some overlap between flipped learning and I would say online learning in general. The key thing is, are students getting first contact with new ideas before a group setting? There is sort of the expectation that there will be a group meeting, some sort of group experience. In a MOOC, that's not always the case. And many MOOCs are completely individual and there might be a discussion board available for students to interact with each other. But it's, in my experience, I've taken over a dozen MOOCs myself and it's very rare that you see like a required group experience. Most MOOCs are not what we call synchronous courses. There are no scheduled times for people to come together and work with each other. In a flip learning environment, that scheduled time to work with each other is critical. Uh, that's where most of the important learning experiences really happen. That can be done in an asynchronous environment, and maybe we can talk about that later. But for, for most MOOCs and many online courses, uh, the group experience is kind of pushed off to the side, and it's intended to be complete self-learning. And flip learning, teaching oneself is expected in the beginning part, but not necessarily in the middle or at the end of the learning experience. So the group experience in a flipped environment is really, really important, but also the individual part is also really, really important. And I feel like it uh, flip learning promotes active learning in all phases, both when students are working individually and when they're working in groups. Interesting. So you mentioned how the traditional learning model has been around for thousands of years. What about the flipped learning model? When exactly was it conceived? Well, the, the DNA of uh, the flipped learning model can be traced back to some of the best uh, history of higher education. I mean, if you look at, for example, uh, the case study method, commonly used in legal education or practicum methods that are you'll find all over the place in the health sciences, these are all play or the Oxford tutorial model. That's a staple of the of the British uh, higher education tradition. These are all based on the idea that students will prepare themselves for a group experience. They'll do some initial contact with new ideas and get up to speed with terminology and basic ideas and the purpose of group meetings 
meetings, if there are group meetings, is to take those ideas and take them to the next level. That has not always been systematically present throughout all of higher education, though. I think the first, when I was researching my book uh, that came out in 2017, I did some digging into the history of flip learning as an organized concept. Uh, and it can really be traced back to the mid to late 1980s uh, to the work of Eric Mazur, who is a physicist at Harvard University and a, a famous, not only a great physicist, but also a pioneer in physics education. And uh, he invented this pedagogical technique, a teaching technique called peer instruction. And it's, you can read all about that. That's another 30-minute podcast just explaining peer instruction probably. But the, the point of peer instruction was students read independently through structured activities in their physics textbook to gain basic terminology. And then they come together to work with some of these really sort of counterintuitive ideas that you find in physics to try to make sense of things like forces and electromagnetism through working through difficult questions with each other. That's a kind of a poor, <laughs> a very <laughs> oversimplified version of peer instruction. Uh, there's much, much more to it. But that was maybe the first notion of flipped learning. Uh, Eric, I, I've known Eric for a long time, and he, he, will, he did not call it anything like flipped learning. That terminology didn't come around until the 1990s. But he would now say that his early work in peer instruction was a, is an instance of flipped learning. It really took off in, I think I mentioned, in, in the late 90s, early 2000s. So it's a relatively recent development as an organized idea. And what's interesting to me is that it popped up in three or four different places independently all around the same time and in universities in the United States. And all the people who developed the idea of flipped learning were all trying to solve very specific pedagogical problems in their classrooms. One person, J. Wesley Baker, who is a computer science professor, uh, was trying to solve the problem of he was teaching what we would now call web design. And he thought it was just kind of pointless for students to listen to a lecture about how to design a web page. What they should be doing when they meet is to actually work on designing web pages. And so this is pre-YouTube, uh, pre-any online video. And he recorded lectures to VCR tapes, VHS tapes, and students would check them out of the library, watch them at home, and then come into class and work on designing websites. Other places, uh, some economists at Miami University in Ohio in the U.S. were confounded by their lectures were only reaching certain members of the class. As other members of the class were having difficulty with lecture pedagogy. They just weren't equipped for it. And so they developed flip learning to differentiate their instruction. And there, there, there are topics that show up all over the place in the early 2000s. Really took off in the 2010s when John Bergman and Aaron Sams, who are two high school chemistry teachers in the U.S., uh, wrote a book on flip learning that became a bestseller, got tons of media attention, and the whole concept has really taken off since. Done. So it's been around for at least a few decades, it seems. 20 so, years is probably a good round number to say. So when looking at the state of affairs today, to what extent is the model embraced? Who's using the flip learning model and why are they using it? That's a great question. It's difficult to say because flip learning doesn't look like just one thing. It's not peer instruction, for example, if you do some research, has a very specific look and feel. And if you walk into a, a lecture hall, you can tell if peer instruction is being used. If you walk into a classroom, it's kind of hard to say whether flip learning is being used. And some people do a little bit of flip learning and some people do a lot of flip learning. But I would say, I've always said that a, a good proxy for how much flip learning has been adopted is to look at the research output, peer-reviewed research publications on flip learning. And that's been increasing exponentially since 
really since around 2000. You will see broad adoption of flipped learning or at least parts of it. Some people choose to take just pieces of the idea of flipped learning or only use flipped learning for a portion of their classes, uh, like, for example, lab sections of a science class. But you will find this really almost everywhere. I've spoken to many people who, for example, are in charge of their university department's performance reviews. And so they look at their faculty members teaching, they go observe classes, and everywhere they go, they think like everybody is doing flip learning, it seems like. It's especially seems to be getting deep and broad adoption in the health sciences. I think some of the most uh, productive output in terms of research into just uh, people gathering data from their own classroom experiences, not necessarily controlled experiments, but people are using flipped learning in their classes and then gathering data about its effectiveness. You'll see it a lot in places like pharmacology, nursing, all these health sciences disciplines, which makes a ton of sense when you think about how those folks need to teach their subjects. I mean, it's got to be heavily practicum-based, and so they want to use flipped learning to kind of clear the way in their classes to talk about applications, about actually, you know, administering drugs to a patient, for example, rather than just simply talking about administering drugs to a patient. These are, to take the simple stuff, terminology, basic ideas, and outsource that to the students and let them learn about it before they come to class and then spend the class time doing, you know, interesting things. Actually, that makes me think back to my experience studying in university. I studied international relations and a lot of my classes, the professors would require us to read up on a research paper and then come into class and we would have a whole discussion about it in class, kind of analyze all the key points of the reading. Is that an example? I feel like they didn't really mention the idea of flipped learning, but I feel like that is an example of what we're talking about. That's a, that's a great point, and it could be an example of flipped learning. The real test as to whether something is flipped learning or not is the amount of structure that's given to the learners in that pre-class experience. Now, I've always maintained that if you are a student in a class and the professor just hands you a text and says, read this, and then come to class ready for a discussion. That's not quite what we mean by flipped learning because not everyone knows how to read a text in international relations really effectively. And so flipped learning would say, I'm going to give you a text on international relations and here are some organized structured activities that will guide you through the reading of that text with specific objectives in mind for what you should be getting out of it. So it's a very heavily guided structured uh, experience as you're learning the stuff for for the first time. So some professors do this. Some professors just hand you a book and say, read this. <laughs> I would say that the latter would not really be characterized as flipped learning. There has to be a structured self-teaching experience prior to any group meeting. So if your university, I mean, it, it, what really matters in the end is just simply whether students are learning and being able to apply material and who cares if it's flipped or not. But in order to really, for me to really qualify as flipped learning and not just somebody handed you a book and told you to read chapter two, that's really the defining characteristic. Okay, interesting. Then perhaps when you mentioned that, perhaps it wasn't exactly an ideal example of flipped learning in my experience, which brings me to ask what it takes to successfully implement a flipped learning model into a learning environment. Let's say in the context of a university, I imagine there would be challenges in using this model in a lecture hall with hundreds of students, for example. 
Is there an effective way to ensure all of those students in that hall are adequately absorbing all the knowledge presented to them at home? Or does this still pose as a challenge for the model? Well, I don't know about ensure. <laughs> I don't know if I would stake my reputation on whether all of my students are absorbing all of the material all the time. I think in education, it's a, everything's asymptotic. I mean, we want to, you're never going to get 100% of students learning 100% of the stuff 100% of the time. It's more, how do you, it, it's, it's more about structuring the environment such that the maximum number of students are getting the maximum amount of knowledge out of the material most of the time and making it possible for students to do that. So I would say, you know, there, there are challenges at all scales to any form of teaching that you do and flip learning is no exception. I would say that on the most basic level, the one thing that really has to be in place for flip learning to work is structure. The lessons need to be structured very, very well, almost like teaching an online course. So those who, who have taught online courses know that you have to structure online courses pretty, not rigidly, I would say, but there has to be a clear scaffold for students to hang on to while they're in the course. Otherwise, it, the information flow becomes almost torrential and nobody can hang on. Flip learning is, feels a lot like that. Uh, pre-class experiences are structured and they happen, things happen at a certain time, at a certain place, under a certain sort of rubric. The class time is fairly structured. The after-class time is fairly structured. Structured. And so, you know, I, in my book, I spell out seven steps for designing a flipped class that make this structure easy to kind of generate every time you teach a lesson. And when students, one thing that helps students complete these pre-class activities, that's always the big question. How do I get students to do the work they're supposed to do before class? You can't really make students do anything. Everything has to be done by consensus in higher education. But one thing that will help students do what they need to do before class uh, is to make things very simple to understand uh, in terms of here's here's what you need to do, here are the things you're supposed to learn, and I'm going to ask you to do only the simplest pieces of material before you come to class, and then make uh, what they're turning in very fault tolerant. If there's if there's grading going on, uh, grade it just on completeness of effort, and and welcome student mistakes in initial learning. That's that's one way to get students to do things. Now you mentioned large lecture halls and rooms. That's that's sort of a different question because that's there's active learning is presumed to be a part of flip learning when students come to their group meetings or class meetings they're going to be working actively and sometimes the architecture of the room can work with you and sometimes it can work against you but there are a number of techniques, I mean, hundreds of active learning techniques, many of which are very simple to implement in a sort of a traditional large seats or bolted to the floor kind of lecture hall, like peer instruction is a, is a great example. And there are others besides. So to, to, to kind of loop back around to the question, what, what has to be in place in order to make this successful? I, I think the the, the structure has to be there to guide students effectively through their self-teaching experiences because many students aren't used to encountering higher education as a self-teaching experience. They think that's a that's a failure of higher education when in fact that's the primary purpose of higher education is to teach people how to teach themselves later on in life. Uh, so guide them through the process, keep it simple, and make the uh, group activities that take place in class very active and compelling and uh I think maybe most importantly, it takes just simply an act of will on the part of the instructor. The instructor really has to be bought into this idea themselves and have the willpower to just say, we're going to continue with this and here is why. And this is going to be a great success if we all get on board and stick with it. Okay, so 
Perhaps you could elaborate a bit more about effective ways that flip teachers uh, utilize to motivate students at home to do their work. Because you mentioned the ultimate question of how we can get students to do their work. What are the ways you use in terms of motivating them? Sure. And motivation, first of all, keep motivation in mind because we can't make students do anything. <laughs> That's the, the kind of the, the horror of higher education is that nothing is compulsory in higher education. Everything is voluntary. So you have to think in terms of not how do I get students or how do I ensure students do this work, but how do I make the pre-class work so interesting and compelling that students will want to do it? That's that's an important shift of, of mine. Now, in terms of what I do personally, I, I kind of mentioned already that when I have a lesson coming up and it's a flip lesson, I have a, in, in my book, I describe this uh, notion of what's called guided practice. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a framework for setting up group for setting up pre-class activities in such a way that they're, they're simple, they're very targeted, and they make sure not to overload students and so on. So students are given like a small bit of material to digest before the group meetings. There's always like an overview that gives students a top-down view of what they're going to be learning. So that helps with motivation. I always make sure to list out specific learning objectives for the lesson in terms of concrete action verbs. Like after this lesson is over with, you will be able to do the following. We should be doing that for every lesson that we teach and but let's make it simple make it concrete and actionable and give it to students make it transparent i tend to uh take that list of learning objectives and split it in two and take the most basic learning objectives and call them basic learning objectives and then take the rest and call them advanced learning objectives and then make sure that students are only targeted to work on the basic learning objectives before class this was a, a realization i had when after my first year of trying flip learning and it was which was a complete failure and disaster and by all rights I should have just quit right then and there but I decided to stick with it uh, I was giving my students learning objectives but they were reading these learning objectives for the entire unit that I was teaching and I didn't want them to learn all the learning objectives before they came to class they thought that they were basically teaching themselves the material with no support no structure and being expected to come into class already having mastered the material that they were supposed to work on in class. And I could see how students would get demotivated by that. That's a lot of material. Imagine learning calculus, a section on taking the derivative of a polynomial function, for example, and you get this list of objectives and it says, learn the following before you come to class. And it's the entire section you're supposed to be working on. I mean, what's the point of even starting? So I learned to say, here, I'm going to take all these learning objectives that eventually you're going to learn, and I'm only going to give you the first couple of them. Okay, like, tell me the definition of the derivative. Take a take a very simple derivative, and the, the, these are the things you should be able to do before you come to class, okay? And I'm going to give you some resources. I try to give students a lot of varied resources, both print and video, audio possibly, or a demo that they can interact with to help them learn the material, and then give them exercises to work through that as they're learning that will give them feedback on whether they are learning those basic objectives. So when students come to class, they have a real sense that they are accomplishing something. And that's really maybe the best motivator of all is just concrete external evidence that your efforts are actually going somewhere. And then 
it's important to tie those basic learning objectives that students are learning before class into what you're doing in class, uh, more advanced learning objectives in a really concrete way. Like students should know that if they fail to engage with the basic stuff before class, they will be completely lost. They will have no chance of engagement with anything important later on. So there's a lot riding on their participation. And then finally, I would say what students do before class. Again, I grade these on the basis of completeness and effort only, and failures and mistakes are most welcome. Those are data for me as a teacher to know what I need to brush up on when we get to class. And so students aren't afraid to make mistakes. Uh, Many times students get demotivated in their work because they are not willing to make errors in their work. In our pre-class activities, the errors are actually the most important part of their work. And if they're going to make mistakes and say they have misconceptions at the front end, I want to know and it's going to make the class better. So all that stuff helps students get motivated. They, they have a sense that they are uh, getting competent at something, that they're making progress. They have a sense that they're not being shut out of the class because they're not understanding something. And uh, they feel like there's a connection between what they're doing and what's coming later that's going to be important for them in their careers. So do you track their progress at home in some form or simply assess them uh, through their in-class performance? That's a great question. You know, assessment is a, is, a, is a multifaceted topic, too. I, for my, my typical method uh, is when students are doing their pre-class activities, what I call guided practice, they can ask questions on a discussion board. And so that's one way to gauge you know, their progress. I mean, if students are asking good questions, that's good progress. Uh, they turn their exercises in using the simple Google form. And so I get all this data before class starts. So these are usually due at 11.59 p.m. the day before the class meeting. So before midnight, they have to turn this in. And I can go into the spreadsheet where the Google form puts its information and scan through it and see what the questions are, what the strong spots are, what the weak spots are before we set foot into the classroom. Okay. And so say the morning of a, of a class meeting, I'll a grade their work because I can do that very quickly use just glancing through the spreadsheet and uh, B I can uh, come up with any sort of on the spot activities or things we need to do in the class before we engage with the important stuff so that assessment takes place through their responses which are very easy to scan even in classes of 30 or more which I very commonly have it's very easy to scan a spreadsheet and see you know what what students are getting and what they aren't What about when you are teaching in an environment that lacks access to technology or the internet? Are there effective means of applying the flipped learning model in that context? Perhaps you could clarify this a bit more for me, but wouldn't it be more difficult to monitor and track those students' progress when they have a lack of access to those tools of tech? That's a really great question. I'm glad you asked that because it's it's an important question in many parts of the world. I mean, I don't want to assume American privilege here. Uh, I've been in in developing countries giving workshops on flipped learning, and we have to sort of go to what works. We got to work with what you have. Uh, it's absolutely possible, first of all, to do uh, flipped learning with no technology whatsoever in the classroom. For example, if you can give simple readings to students by having them read out of their textbook, there's no need for electronics for this. As long as you're giving students guided 
structured guidance through the reading and sort of coaching them on their reading, maybe just through a handout that they receive that will get them to ask questions and have them do exercises. And then when they come to class, uh, instead of using a Google form, for example, you could have the students do a one-minute paper, for example, to say, I'm going to list everything that you learned about derivatives of polynomial functions. For example, you have one minute, go. (laughs) And just students begin to write and write and write. Or maybe you designate a student to come to the front of the class and debrief us on what the reading was about. For example, I have a colleague at Grand Valley that does this. It's a Every student can get randomly accessed at any point to come and give an oral presentation about what they read. So there are, there are different ways to do this. And uh, if students are doing pre-class work, they could just simply write it out and hand it in. You wouldn't have the benefit of being able to assess that work before class starts necessarily, so you would lose something. But if that's the situation, then you know that's the situation. I will mention that the tools like Google Tools are actually pretty accessible. I mean, uh, students who have... Uh, for example, just a, a basic data connection to the internet can can use a Google form. The country I was in, in particular, uh, not very many people had smartphones, but everyone had a cell phone <laughs> somewhere or another, a, a flip phone. Uh, it's one of these countries where the, the internet infrastructure was terrible, but the cell phone infrastructure was like ahead of the United States. It was an incredible situation. And so there are tools available that students can use cell phones to log, say, online polls, for example, or uh, respond to text messages from the instructor with polling activities and so forth. Uh, Where there's a will, there's a way. But if you had to go completely zero technology other than just pencil and paper, it could absolutely be done. On the other hand, I can imagine you could also use those principles in an online or hybrid environment because of the nature of some courses allowing you to study at your own pace. Uh, Do you agree or does it kind of differ in their application? Oh, I totally agree. Uh, I teach, uh, I'm actually teaching an online course uh, this summer and I've taught hybrid and online courses. And in many ways, the hybrid course experience, in my opinion, is like the the logical conclusion of flipped learning. It's it's sort of like the perfect environment for flipped learning in many ways, where it really differs is in online courses, you often do not have scheduled group activities and so-called asynchronous online courses, for example. The group activities may take place, like in my course I'm teaching right now, it's a pre-calculus course. We have a discussion board, and but no planned meetings. But we can absolutely have structured group activities. For example, every uh, Tuesday night, my students are supposed to post a solution to a problem they've been given for the week, and then we spend Wednesday and Thursday discussing those problems. And before they get around to posting their solution, they are supposed to do some pre quote unquote pre class activities through guided practice before they are allowed access to any of the video, for example. So it sort of mimics the uh, the in class experience in some ways. There is still the notion of students are getting their first contact with new ideas through structured self teaching activities before any group activity takes place. That can still be done even in an asynchronous online course. And in fact, I feel like online courses have, or in some ways, a much better environment. They're easy to work with environment than face-to-face courses in some ways because you have so many tools available at your disposal. There's a presumption when you take an online course as a student that you're going to be surrounded by technology and you're going to have access to this technology and you're going to be using it a lot. So you can pull in technology at a a rate that's much higher than that of a face-to-face course, perhaps. So considering all we have discussed so far, let me ask this question to you. Do you think that educators seeking Flipped learning models should expect a 
comparatively easier or more difficult means of teaching as opposed to using a traditional form of learning? Oh, I would say it's, it's traditional forms of teaching are easy to do. Okay. All you have to do is write out your lecture notes and talk. I mean, there's almost nothing simpler than this. And that's why it's so ineffective because it's, there's, it doesn't really engage with the real difficult parts of student learning. When you're doing a flip learning environment, you have to pay a lot more attention to what your students are actually doing and learning both before class and during class and after class. So there's a there's it's not simple it's not easy to do necessarily. There is quite a bit of overhead to take care of and if you're going to do it I highly encourage flip learning obviously. I mean uh, all the research results are pointing back at us saying like flip learning it does really help improve students uh, overall cognitive capacities and what they learn in their classes. But it doesn't come for free. There's quite a bit of planning that has to take place. For some instructors there needs to be a complete shift in the way you think about planning a class. And uh, it does take some time to ramp up to it. Uh, I've got a blog post, and I don't know if you have like a show notes or whatever, but I can give the link to it. That points back to a a one-year plan, uh, a complete calendar year for if you're interested in doing flipped learning in your classes, take a year, take a full calendar year to really get ramped up into the process. And so when you get around to actually teaching it, you you will be very comfortable with it. I will say that once you get used to teaching with flipped learning, you will never go back because uh, students are really highly engaged in your class. They're learning like they've never learned before. And you have the time and the space in your group meetings to actually really adequately explore concepts, which to me was the real eye-opener when I started doing this flip learning. But it does take practice. It does take some preparation. So the instructors need to be ready to deal with that. Do send me the link and I'll absolutely add it to the show notes. But you mentioned uh, the research covering the success of the model. Perhaps you could elaborate more on those uh, studies? Sure. Uh, There's so much research that's out there now about flip learning. Uh, I've got another series of posts about just how much research is there on flip learning, and I'll send you those links as well. It's hard to pinpoint any one particular study. We don't have like a a real standout uh, home run study for flip learning like some other areas do. But I will say that flip learning research has been growing exponentially since around 2014. Very many uh, peer-reviewed published articles are out there. What these are all telling us, uh, if you summed them up in total, are that generally speaking, flipped learning does help students learn better in class. They It does help students improve their cognitive capabilities. They do learn better. The effect sizes of flipped learning tend to be modest. You don't tend to see like massive improvements in learning compared to traditional instruction, but it's never worse. (laughs) Flipped learning has never hurt students' learning. And so that's that's one thing to to feel good about, I guess. Where you do see really strong results with flipped learning is in student motivation, student engagement. And to me, this is really almost more important in some ways than just sheer content mastery of whatever subject students are learning. Students in flipped learning courses report that they come away from classes feeling more capable as learners, that they feel like they can go on to the next class and do better. They feel more connected to their peers. They feel more connected to their instructors. They uh, have a greater capacity for monitoring themselves while they are learning. So really, I feel like flipped learning research is telling us that it's a great way to create what we call lifelong learners, that students get the process and the tools for lifelong learning at a much faster pace in a flipped environment than they do anywhere else. And for me, that's all I need to hear. Even if I didn't have the research, if I just looked at the anecdotes instead and saw this, I would say I'm sold. I'm using this. 
I should also say that some, a lot of the research out there is not the greatest quality. Uh, like that may be true for any uh, discipline, I suppose. It's getting better, and where you see most of this research arising from are from ordinary, everyday faculty members who are trying flip learning in their classes and then just collecting data, interviewing students, and reporting back on their experiences. Uh, this doesn't have necessarily the research strength of something like a controlled random assignment type of experimental study. It's a quasi-experiment at best, what we call it. But to me, I really like the fact that most of the research out there are just ordinary, everyday people reporting back on their experiences, because I can relate to that. I can read the research and say, like, that person did something and it really worked for them and their students. And I think that I can replicate that in my own classroom. It's very hands-on and very right where most instructors are. And I think instructors can learn a lot just from reading some of these studies. And if anybody out there listening is wondering, well, I teach, uh, you know, a subject in, say, international relations. How would I use this in my classroom? You can just go to Google Scholar and do a search on flip learning international relations and probably come up with what amounts to some case studies and just freely sample from what you see. So I, I think... I'm I'm very optimistic about the state of flip learning research, how much is being done, what it's telling us, and who's doing it especially. With that being said, I must ask you, how do you envision the future of the model and what kind of challenges need to be addressed in order to further perfect it or refine the model in the future? Yeah, great question. So I think one of the, I, I have another blog post and I'll send, I feel like I'm sending you nothing but links here. I have another one where I talk about some, what I consider to be grand challenges for the next uh, 20, 50 years of flip learning. One of those is I, I think that we need to have better research on flip learning that's a little bit more methodologically rigorous. It's great to have so much ground level grassroots approach to flip learning research, but we need something a little bit higher level. And we're beginning to get some of, some of these. Uh, some papers recently that really do a great job of grounding flip learning in solid psychological and educational theory, uh, self-determination theory, cognitive load theory, and so on, and that, that make uh, our quasi-experiments better. So I think we're poised to do better research where we can learn more. I think one thing in the future that I would like to see flip learning address too are, I don't know how you would put this, uh, sort of students that are not in the mainstream. I'm thinking particularly of students who have learning disabilities, such as uh, attention deficit disorder or executive functioning disorders, where um, they just have difficulty maintaining attention on a stream of information or making decisions about what they need to learn next, for example. I'm, in, I'm doing a study right now that's just beginning to gather some data about how students with learning disabilities experience flipped learning. It's, it's hard to tell whether those students are helped or not by the flipped model. Uh, and so we need to learn more about how non-standard students experience this. I also think that online learning is poised to have a very strong period of growth coming up very soon, at least in the United States. I don't know how it is in other countries. Uh, there's a strong interest in expanding online education. And so flip learning is poised, I think, to be a contributor to making that model really and truly effective. And I think that's a one, one thing I see in the future is a coming together of the concepts of flip learning and online online learning and the hybrid model as well. There's a lot of overlap and similarities between studies and practices on those three ways of teaching. I would like to see that become sort of one way of teaching with three different aspects. And I think we have a ways to go on that. I would also mention too that your question earlier about what about students who have a lesser access to technology than others is extremely important. And we've yet to really identify strong practices for flipped learning in that kind of situation. I think we have work to do there. So on a final note, Robert, 
I know you like to share a lot of links and that's completely fine on our part. Share as many links as you want. But where can listeners learn more about flipped learning if they're interested in uh, utilizing it in their own classrooms and perhaps more about your own work? Sure. Well, I would be a little remiss if I didn't start with my own book on the subject. I hate to be self-promoting, but I wrote a book called Flip Learning in Higher Education or Flip Learning, a Guide for Higher Education Faculty. Uh, it was published in 2017 by Stylus Publications here in the U.S. Uh, it's really aimed at university faculty. So if there are any primary or secondary educators, there are some maybe better resources for you that I'll mention in a second. But my book was at the time, and maybe still is, just a, it's everything that I think I know about flip learning just put into a single volume. I want to just get this out of my head and, and uh, quit writing blog posts about it. So I would, I, would, I would love for you to take a look at the book. I'm very happy with the way that it turned out. I, it was just translated into Portuguese, which is kind of exciting and fun. Uh, anybody in Portuguese-speaking nations, you have your own version of this. I also write about flip learning a lot on my blog, uh, rtalbert.org. Other places to go to learn about flip learning, I would highly recommend fliplearning.org, which is an organization uh, devoted to flip learning, and they have a lot of great resources there on their website. Also, there is a group called the Flip Learning Global Initiative, FLGI, that as it sounds uh, is a group of uh, practitioners and researchers, of which I'm a part, I should uh, disclose that, that's really committed to making flip learning a global movement, which it really already is. I mean, uh, there, there's a strong level of interest and adoption in uh, flip learning, for example, in South America. Uh, in the Middle East, too, uh, there's a great deal of interest. And so the Flip Learning Global Initiative brings together teachers and researchers from all over the world to discuss and share ideas about flip learning. I highly recommend that to, uh, to anybody interested. For primary and secondary educators, I can't recommend enough uh, John Bergman and Aaron Sam's book called Flip Your Classroom, Reach Every Student in Every Class Every Day, I think is the subtitle. Uh, it was the book that really kicked off the movement and uh, it's still very active. John Bergman is the head of the Flip Learning Global Initiative, for example. So that would be maybe the best resource uh, for anybody teaching the lower uh, levels below university. Two, I've, finally, I would just say uh, a great place to go to learn more about flip learning is the research publications that I've already mentioned. If you're, if this is really making you interested and wondering what it looks like in your discipline, for example, hit up Google Scholar, uh, scholar.google.com, and uh, just do a search on flip learning and then follow it with your discipline, and you will be amazed at what's already been done out there. So those are all what I, what I consider great starter resources for anyone interested in getting involved. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been a pleasant discussion. Perhaps we can continue it again sometime in the future. I would very much like that. Thank you. There you have it. A big thank you to Robert Talbert for joining this episode all about flipped learning. What did you think of the discussion? Do let us know by commenting on our social media channels. You can also send us an email, which you can find in the description. You can also find the links to all the research and articles Robert mentioned during our discussion. Be sure to check out his blog for more information. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out other wise content on our website. See you next time.